Have you ever noticed how consumers are more willing to take risks in order to avoid losing something? Or how people value items they own, which they have an emotional attachment to, far more than similar items owned by somebody else? These and many other seemingly irrational phenomena can be explained partly through behavioral economics. On this episode, we'll be discussing this relatively new field of economics, which is helping marketers improve their customer experience. My name is Jared Doyle, and this is the Fractal Podcast, where we help startup founders like you get the most of the marketing for their business. Hi, and welcome to the episode. This week, we are joined by Phil Slade, who is managing partner of Decidia. But what's really interesting for us is that Phil is a behavioral economist, which means in my layman's interpretation, he is a specialist at why we do the things that we do as customers, and then potentially how all of us as founders and maybe part-time marketers can use that to our advantage, not for evil, but for good. So Phil, thank you so much for joining us. No problems at all. Great to be chatting with you. So we've got like a plethora of things that these days in marketing, particularly when you're talking about, you know, convincing and and the art form that is marketing, behavioral economics and marketing go hand in hand. I mean, behavioral economics is much bigger than marketing, but in my world, that's what I think about. And, (laughs) and you know, look, I'm so keen to talk about some of these different things. Now, one of the ones that I know that I talk about all the time when I'm doing social media marketing on Facebook is a thing called social proof. So, you know, social proof sometimes for me on Facebook means just getting a whole lot of people to like a post because the more people who like it, the more people are likely to like it as well. But yeah. I wonder if you can give us a bit of a, a bit of a more formal reason as to why social proof actually works. Look, I think in order to answer this, I, I talk about behavioral economics all around the place in many conferences. And one of the things I try to, to ask people first off is, is how much they know about behavioral economics. You know, I, I go, you know, where, where 10 is, I've just done a PhD. Five is, uh, I've read a couple of books. I've kind of heard the term. I know what biases are and how it works. And zero is, I, I think you just made up the term and, and you're full of shit. And most people, even now, after years and years of preaching the gospel of behavioral economics, are back down at zero, one or two. And I find that to explain some of these phenomena, people really need to have a sort of basic understanding or some language around the way that we talk about behavioral economics. So I'm wondering, do, we, do, do you think it's possible, uh, you know, should we sort of just do a, a two minute what is behavioral economics as a little snapshot for people? I think that makes a lot of sense. I probably jumped in here at a, whatever I rate myself at a 1.8 or something. Um, <laughs> super keen. I'm keen to get into the Tic Tacs, but yeah, please do. Please do. Give us a, give us a summary. So basically, behavioral economics is a study of how we process information and more particularly how we incorrectly process information to make poor judgments and poor decisions. It comes from the observation that we don't actually make decisions that are always in our best interests, which is where traditional economics uh, is basically based on the philosophy that, that we all make decisions to better ourselves to serve our self-interests and behavioral economics came along and said there's a whole raft of decisions that we make that are actually counter to that hypothesis and sort of undermines the economic modeling that's been around for hundreds of years but essentially what they found out was that there's two different ways of processing information they called it system one and system two because they're highly creative people of course and Nobody remembers what system one and system two is, and they get confused and mixed up all the time. So the way that we sort of explain it is that system one is your fast, intuitive, it's your reactive, it's your split decisions. Malcolm Gladwell would have, you know, termed it the blink reflex. 
your snap judgments. They're largely emotional. And it's also largely driven by parts of the brain that are our most primitive parts of our brain. So this is the part of the brain that's developed early in the womb. It's the part of the brain that evolutionarily we share with our, you know, with the apes to a degree. And so we call this our ape. And so you, we've all got an ape. Um, they're emotional, they're reactive, but they learn things over time. But you've also got a system too, which we call your apsy, which we can go into later on. Um, but it's a way of talk, talking about you, you and your rational sense. It's the you that you're much more aware of. It's the you that's engaged right now when you're listening to this podcast because you're trying to pull in information and make a rational choice. The problem is, is that most people think it's their apsy, their system too, their rational side that makes a lot of decisions when actually it's our ape that rules the roost. It's our ape that is driven by fear, but it's also driven by self-protection. And it's the way that we've learned to survive. And the way that we've learned to survive in the past is the way that we think we're going to survive in the future. And this doesn't always come about, of course. I, I like to talk about a story of myself. Well, I grew up in parks in central New South Wales. It's a farming town, a wheat and sheep farm. And on the way to school, I used to walk across this road, the parks to Orange Highway. And mum would say, you know, you look left, look right, look left again before you cross that road. There are major trucks and things like that, and you'll be safe. And she drilled this into us. We've all, we all know this, right? You know, living and growing up in Australia, you look left, look right, look left again and cross the road. The problem is, is that we start to shortcut these rules. So our ape goes, oh, I learned that behavior. I know it. It becomes instinctive. And what happens is you sort of look left, see that there's no cars coming on your left, and you step out onto the road often. And as you're stepping out onto the road, you look right to see if there's another car. And this works fine. This is, you know, you've got half a road to figure out if the, the car's coming from your right. And so you grow up with this sort of pattern of behavior. The problem was I went to LA when I was 17. I was so excited. I, I plane landed. I've been in the plane for, you know, 18, you know, felt like three days at that point. Ran out onto the, onto the road to catch a taxi, put my foot out, looked left, and almost got taken out by a bus on the right because obviously the cars were on the other side of the road. And my ape had learnt this behaviour to look left and right. So this, that, that's an example of a rule or a heuristic, they would call in psychological terms, that you learn, your ape learns to protect yourself, that when applied in the wrong context or the wrong situation actually puts us in harm. Now, you can sort of see how this works in a sort of a you know, crossing the road context, but it's much harder to see that when we're talking about sort of more invisible behavioural lessons that we learn, world, our worldview, our cultural, our heritage the way that we respond and react to information in the world that feels right in, intuitively. And so the problem is, is that, you know, in LA, I, when I almost got hit by the bus, my initial reaction was actually to get angry at the bus, not to get angry at the fact that I hadn't looked right, right? That's my initial instinct. And I think in real life, in those more sort of ambiguous, you know, terms and the complexity of life, we're more likely when we get hit by the bus, so to speak, we're more likely to blame the bus and not realize that it's actually our poor decision making. So the behavioral economics is basically looking at the rules that we, our, our apes assume, the things that we've learned to, to survive over time, and looking at context and seeing where we're actually getting hit by the bus and we don't even realize it. And that's kind of the study of behavioral economics. So it can be used in the reverse. So, so that's sort of the, the negative view. The positive view is when you know that people are always looking left, how do you then arrange the context in order to work with that? So if the, you know, what is the rules that you can create, artificially create the environment or the architecture of the choice environment in order to make it more likely that people will do the things that you're doing because you're working with the behaviors that 
uh, the ape behaviors that have been practiced over time. And this is what's called choice architecture. I suppose the next phase of behavioral economics is really looking at not just your ape behavior, but what happens when you're in your rational mind, because there are some biases that happen even when you're processing information at a rational level. And that's really fascinating. It's very new. And that's kind of the cutting edge sort of stuff. So I don't know, is, is that a is that a is that a pretty good overview? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fantastic explanation. Because for me now, what I can say is going back to I was talking about Facebook and social proof. Social proof, if I can interpret it correctly from what you've just said in a social media context, is hey, if a whole lot of people have liked this post on Facebook, then they can't all be wrong. So yeah. my eight brain says follow the pack yeah. and I'll be okay too. That's I'm guessing that's the essence of, of social proof on Facebook and, Pretty much. and connecting it to my, yeah. Pretty much. I mean, if you think about it as a survival, so if you think about your apes trained to help you survive and thrive, you know, evolutionarily, we respond, we, we hunt in packs. We know that there is safety in numbers. We're more likely to do things that other people are doing. So if we see other people doing things, it feels safer to do them yourself. You don't want to be ostracized or be outside of the group because that's danger, right? That's where you're most exposed. You're more likely to be attacked by a predator. Therefore, you know, you want to be part of the pack. You want to be part of the group. Malcolm Gladwell sort of calls this the tipping point. You know, what is that tipping point where sort of an individual of the early adopters, how do you get enough early adopters in to sort of tip the balance between them just being early adopters to being now becomes the new norm? And and what you're wanting to do is normalize this new behavior whatever that would be, to like a, like a, to follow a certain post, to like a certain product, to, you know, even, even when, you, when you look at product value, this is just not trying to normalize conceptual behavior. And one way that you do that is to say, look how many other people are doing it. It, it sort of works in reverse too, which is really interesting. So when you point out, for instance, that, you know, isn't it terrible that, that 80% of people don't donate to charity in Australia, for instance? I don't know if that's true. I'm just sort of pulling a number out of my head. Often you hear people saying, you know, most people don't do it. Isn't this terrible? You know, we really need to do something about it. And people get all up in arms about, yeah, it's so low, it's so low. Meanwhile, the people at home are like, well, you know, 80% of other people are doing it. So I'm like, yeah, it's terrible, it's terrible, but I'm unlikely to do it. But if you picked an area, so you picked a suburb or you picked somewhere where donations are much higher, you can, you then talk about that suburb and you go, you know, 75% of this suburb, hopefully it would be some sort of aspirational affluent suburb. People are doing this. So when you sort of say, you know, 75% of people that, that live in, you know, I don't know, insert affluent suburb here are donating to these great causes and see that as a really important part of good financial health, all of a sudden everyone else goes, wow, if I want to be like those people, I'll also start donating. And it's a way of sort of manipulating in a way social proof. So there's many ways to do that. It's a fascinating sort of concept and governments use it to help people pay the taxes on time and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's a very strong version of what's called the herd instinct, which is, you know, you look up other people, you know, you walk down the footpath and get three people to look up at a building, you'll find everyone else looks up as well. You know, it's that, kind of, it's that same sort of instinct, but it's when it's mixed with sort of fear of missing out and, and ostracism. And I want to I like what other people like, because then I'm part of the group, I'm part of the in crowd, then all of a sudden it becomes a thing. Yeah. And look, and this is what I said at the start where, you know, we need to use this for good, not evil, but it is that thing from a marketing point of view. Like I know social media marketers will often, for example, say, okay, I want to target the US. That's my key market. But what I'm going to do is run a whole lot of ads targeting India or Brazil or the Philippines where it's infinitely cheaper, build up 
a perceived social proof. So my post there has 40 or 50 or 60 likes on it. And then I know that all the things being equal, if I A, B split test that, the post that's got the 50 likes, even though they're not necessarily people that I know, is going to get more traction. And that's just a way, I guess, you can manipulate that eight brain and social proof to actually achieve an upswing in your marketing efforts, which I guess is, it's a little bit subversive, but at the same time, that's part of the game, right? So hopefully if you're being subversive, you're doing it for the right reasons and the product or the service you're selling is good as well. Well, I mean, most marketing is subversive. You know, like when, you, when you're talking to, to get people to buy something, you got two things that are of equal value. You make decisions based on what it looks, how it makes you feel as a, as a consumer, all these other sorts of things. And so, you know, you, how it makes you look to other people, you know, it's, we're very social creatures. So to the extent that we're making purchase decisions based on uh, sort of social perceptions is, is sort of makes sense, really. They're not necessarily individually good financial decisions, but they feel like a good social decision. So yeah, it, it's subversive yeah. for sure. But you know, whenever you talk about influence and persuasion, there's always there's always sort of a scary element to it. But it happens all the time, right? We we don't exist without influence and and persuasion. So it's not about being scared of it; it's about being recognizing it and using it, you know, you know, in an appropriate sort of way. Yeah, I was thinking about when you think about the slightly subversive way of using it in marketing, and and one of the ones that I've read a bit about is the decoy effect. And and we often, you know, with especially SaaS businesses and startup subscription business, but anything we're doing pricing, the decoy effect is one that, whilst I'm not going to say I've mastered it, is one that I see everyone. It basically everyone applies it now when they're building their pricing pages because that's something they want to do. So before I get into how people might use it on a pricing page and, and valuing their services, maybe you can give us another two-minute introduction as to kind of how the decoy effect works when it comes to pricing. Well, look, pricing is really interesting and, and decoy effect or, or even indeed the anchoring bias. I mean, I, I find anchoring is fascinating, right? So anchoring is the idea that you can speak about a number and we do this in experimental situations where we would ask people, how old do they think Gandhi is? And we do this live to a room, right? So there's, there's 30 people in a room. We give them each a card. They don't know that they've got two different cards. They think that everyone's got the same card. And on this card, it says, do you believe that Gandhi on, on one set of cards was uh, 130 when he died? Yes or no. And on the other set of cards, it's do you believe that Gandhi was 32 when he died? Yes or no, right? So they answer yes or no. And then the next question immediately following that is how old do you think Gandhi was? Now, if you got the yes, whether you think Gandhi was either of those ages is irrelevant to the experiment, right? But the people that saw the 130 as opposed to 30 will on average be about 30 years higher in their estimation of when Gandhi died uh, than the people that had the younger age. So they're anchored to this number because they don't really know what the number is. Nobody really knows how old Gandhi was when he died, you know, and it's kind of brings out this bias of anchoring. Interestingly enough, when you look at decoys effect, I often find that it's a little bit more about how you, it's the perception of numbers. There's all these sorts of things like perception of large numbers. If, you're, if you've got something expensive, if you put $100 with a decimal point and two extra zeros and then go versus 25K, there's something in our brains that actually thinks that the 100 with the two decimal points is greater than the 25k now obviously that's an extreme version but you can do it with a thousand or 1200k or 12k sorry and people will actually intuitively think if they're glancing at it that the thousand dollars written out as one zero 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 decimal point zero zero is higher than 12k which is really interesting because obviously it's not when you think about it rationally but 
this is this perception of numbers that we have and we have all these biases that sit around that. But I think anchoring and default is is interesting. I mean, there's another one where you can sort of have three choices. We know that if you have three choices and put in a ridiculous choice, people are more likely to pay the middle choice rather than the lower. But if you give them two choices, they're more likely to pick the lower. Stuff like that. Like it's really... So there's a, there's a whole lot of uh, interesting effects there. I mean, what was it about that? And that, that's the one that people use on their pricing pages all the time, right. which is, you know, a base a base plan, a middle plan, and then like the really expensive enterprise plan. And then everyone just default to the middle one. That's right. So and then your average basket value goes up. Yeah. And it's kind of, a, it's a mix of anchoring. You know, it comes from newspapers, right? When newspapers were going online, they had a digital offering. People were, he had different subscriptions. Would you like the digital version or would you like the newspaper? And they were trying to push them towards the digital offering. And so they would often say the digital would be, you know, the digital plus a subscription for a weekend edition or something would be $50. The newspaper itself would be sort of $30. And people weren't buying it And that with those two. They'd just still go with the cheaper newspaper option. They weren't really used to it. When they put a third option in, which was a digital only option at $75, they go, that's ridiculous. Why would I pay $75? For $50, I can get the digital and the newspaper. And all of a sudden, it drove the choices where sort of, I think, 30% were going for one and 60 with the other. It sort of flipped it around. And so all of a sudden, 70% of the choice was this middle option, which was print and digital, because they had this absurd higher digital that drove the perception of value for this middle option. And all they'd done was had a third option. They hadn't actually changed the offering at all. So this is this is kind of where default comes into play. It doesn't always work. Like you've got to have, it's almost like you, the more ridiculous the higher option is, the less likely it would be. So people try to bake in value to the third option. So actually make the third option try to be, be more expensive, but feel like they have to put in value. It's like, no, you're actually trying to drive people not to that third option or the higher option. You're just trying to drive them to that second option. And so the more absurd it is, maybe the better it is. You know, it's, it doesn't sort of matter, which I think is, is fascinating. You're just trying to get them to, 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 to do the middle option. So, yeah, so, yeah I, I think it's, it's a fascinating study. So, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of things to learn there. But for, for founders or, or owners of companies who are looking at pricing pages, particularly if they're like a SaaS company, yeah, make sure you... If you've only got a couple of options, add that third ridiculous option and try to create the yeah. perception that there's actually a uh, it's much more value. And yeah, and and then I guess you know the other thing like you kind of touched on there is at the same time is getting into that it's like the anchoring, which is that idea that actually before you get down to actually picking your price, create that perception of what the product or the service is actually worth or in their minds, and then discount mm. it immediately. Mm. So just kind of yeah, I think that's where businesses do a really good job of sort of putting things on sale. So it's normally three ninety nine, but it's you know for the next week for you know the July sales or Amazon Prime, it's only ninety nine, mm. which you know, I mean, like, I guess we all get that, right? That's a pretty standard sales technique. And that's anchoring. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's straight out anchoring. You're anchoring them to a higher price, irrespective. So it's $99 one week, and the next week it's $99 reduced from 132 Like, it, it could be the same price, right? But people are more likely to buy it because they're anchored to a higher price and they, 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 have, a, they have a feeling of, a, of, of a good value all of a sudden because they're anchored to it. This is, this is the sort of insidious nature. An interesting thing about the default that there's a sort of a variation to that, which is often when you've got a binary choice. So say we did some work for people that were buying something and it's not going to be a car, but I'm, I'm going to suggest a car for the purpose of the example so that people don't figure out what it was. But, you know, it could be you buy a car and you say, do you, would you like beefed up tires with that? 
and and most people would go no well, I, i'm not going to get beeps up tires I'll, I'll i'll just get the normal car so they don't they don't have anything and occasionally you get sort of 10 percent taking on the the tires as an extra but then all of a sudden we, we experimented with what happens if if you've got all these different options so you've got tires you've got window tinting i don't know what, what happens when you buy a car it really this example i'm making up on the spot it really wasn't a car thing but you get the sense that if there's like five or six options and you don't really care what option they pick but you're just not wanting them to pick the non-option if that makes sense like the null option which is no extras the more options that people put up to about five or se- five to seven options then instead of 90 percent of people saying nothing and 10 percent taking the tire 90 percent would choose something and only 10% would choose nothing. It's a version of the default bias, which, you know, as a, as a purchaser, you'd need to be aware of, but it's kind of like, it feels like they would choose something rather than nothing. And that's, that's in a scenario where they've got, where no, choosing nothing is an option, an actual option where they can choose. It just changes the, the nature of the, of the default bias. But you've got to be careful. I mean, I think this is where Sometimes, you know, we, we, we look at individual customer value. So you're getting $10 out of them. How do you, rather than getting more customers, how do you just get those customers you've already got spending more? And this is where you've got to have, sometimes have a look at the ethics of, of that as well. And, and you know, this, this becomes really interesting because I think regulators are starting to have a look at these sorts of effects, particularly with very large purchase items that often get people into trouble. And they're actually using these effects as a way of justifying laws that they're bringing down at the moment particularly in financial services so yeah it's really interesting isn't it interesting you think about you think about a field of economics that actually hasn't been around that long and now they're actually looking at putting it into law because they're realizing the effects are real and yet there'd still be some economists out there and argue that we're all still econ brains and rational in everything that we do yeah well i mean that's great they'll they'll be my best customers so please Please feel like that you're not you're being run by your ape because I'll sell to your ape every day of the week then. You know, so they're, they're, they're awesome. I love playing with those guys. Right. So, okay, I'm conscious of time and I've got, and unfortunately, I've got all these different things that I've read about and I'm keen to talk about. So I'm going to pick my favorite last one to talk about, which is loss aversion, which I think is really relevant to founders of companies who are trying to do innovative kind of solutions because yeah. it's it's often hard to get people to change out of what they've already got yeah. or to change a way they've already been doing something. So can we can we do we'll do the same formula. Can you give us a bit of background of what loss aversion is and then we'll try to tie it into how maybe because we're going to have to fight against this yeah. a little bit and how our founders of innovative startups can maybe fight against loss aversion or at a minimum appreciate why it's so hard to get people yeah. over this hurdle. Look, I, I think loss aversion is a simply is simply the uh, observation that you're more likely to make a decision to avoid a negative outcome rather than to embrace a positive opportunity. So it comes from ba- uh, the basic experiment that it came from originally was a was a you know if you've got fifty dollars and I flipped a coin heads I give you fifty dollars tails you have to give me your fifty dollars are people going to take that and that, that one no because the the loss of the fifty dollars hurts a lot more than gaining an extra fifty dollars so people don't take the the flip the coin by and large you have to actually the the gain has to be double the amount so the gain would have to be you can get a hundred dollars if i flip heads but you have to give me fifty dollars if i flip tails then the the loss of the the fifty dollars is somewhat you know mitigated for by the the feeling that you get the happiness of $100 is sort of more equal to the pain of the losing the $50. What's really interesting is that if you take that, so $100, $50 sort of chance, and you you lose, 
the effect reverses. So you become more risk appetite. So I could actually then say 50-50 and you're more likely to take it because you're trying to make up for the loss. And so people end up doubling down when they make a loss and, and it makes them, throws them into all sorts of poor outcomes because they're doubling down to try and catch up for the loss that they've gotten and they just lose more. It's sort of a, the classic gambler's fallacy, but you see it in organizations all the time, particularly in startups where they've invested so much and they lose it, they'll go and get twice as much investment because they're, they're motivated to mitigate for the loss that they've already had, particularly if it, if it represents a large sum of their investment and their investors are sort of looking at this, they'll actually get riskier the more they lose, not more prudent. You would think that if you've lost some money, you'll learn from it and become a little bit more prudent with the money that you got. But that's not what happens. Uh, the reverse happens. And this is really interesting. But uh, loss aversion is often uh, fear of missing out is a little bit like loss aversion. But what you sort of alluded to it, it, it sort of as you were leading in isn't so much loss aversion as what they call sunk cost bias. And we do see this in all sorts of areas. So sunk cost bias is the more that you've invested in something, more time that you've invested, the more likely you are to keep going even if the, even if the context or situation changes. And I think it's the loss of the investment that you've already made in the idea. And this can be really hard for people to pivot. So one of the eternal questions that all startups have to sort of wrestle with is how resilient do I need to be with this idea? How, by, by sticking the course and, and trying to prove that this idea has worked, and what's the, what's the moment that you should pivot and just let whatever cost you've in, input into this idea, wash it to one side and move to something else? And what is it that, you know, people that just over pivot, you know, they're just, oh, that didn't work. Let's go to something else. And they don't really give it the time that the ideas needed in order for it to blossom, right? They're sort of two sides of the same coin. And I think this is a, this is a real hard decision for a lot of startups in particular to, to make, particularly when you're in the second or third year and they go, are we just drinking our own Kool-Aid or are we just, are we so sunk cost and we got so much sunk cost time and energy that we're going to see this through until we're broke and we've lost our house or are we actually should we pivot or is it just timing and and that's that's a really individual but there's no blanket answer to that you know most startups really do take two to three years to find their product market fit that's the the, the sort of the, the misnomer that you you'll get it in six months or these these unicorns that are out there they really are the unicorns right that doesn't it's, it's, it's startups are just small businesses and the rules of small business by and large haven't changed really you know i remember in the 80s and 90s i would say three years to, to start up a small business and whilst the digital environment has sped that up a little bit the users of the of of the new products haven't so by and large, it still takes the same amount of time for people to get used to idea, for people to get familiar with an idea, for people to know that it's an actual thing. You think about MP3 players, for instance, you know, yeah, Apple bought out the MP3 player and exploded, but there was two years of MP3 development before that point, you know, so it's, it's, it's really interesting. But I think loss aversion works on many, many, many different levels. Fear of missing out, so loss aversion, there's the startups, but there's the industry of startup as well, if, you, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of people making money out of startups and the startups themselves aren't making much money. But the peop there are people around startups that are making a whole lot of money. And a, whole lot of the and a lot of the time, they're tapping into this loss aversion. So they're offering courses or they're offering things, you know, for startups to get ahead. I, I used to, I come from music industry. So 
I saw this in the bands of the 90s. So we were around, I was in a band and Powderfinger was around us and Regurgitator, all these great band, Brisbane bands, right? And we're all in the same sort of scene. And so sort of, you're talking to my heritage there. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? So this is my thing, you know, and I, I produced, a, I was on the production team for a lot of their albums. I, I did the stars. I was right into that scene, right? And you would see it all the time that these people who, who weren't that much, weren't great themselves, so they didn't really have a hit themselves, but they would put on these, you know, songwriting courses and, and ways to be a better, ways to become, make it in the music industry and, and the, you know, things, go to seminars and courses and you'd see these struggling musos that were hardly earning anything really, but were so desperate to be in the, the music industry, seeing that they'd spend money on these conferences and things. And, and some of it was great and they'd come out thinking that they'd done well, but very, basically none of them ever went on to do anything of significance. And the correlation between bands that made it and didn't make it had nothing to do with the level of courses or the things that they did in order to go in there. But the, the fear of missing out is that I might meet someone there or I might, this, this might be the magic thing that finally breaks, break, allows us to break through. And it's that fear of missing out on that opportunity that's driving this behavior. And really what they just needed to double, do was double down and write and record. That would have been better to spend $2,000 recording a song than going to this conference in Sydney or whatever it was at the time. And I think the startup industry is, like, is very much the same. There's a lot of glamour that sits around start, the startup industry in the same way there's a lot of glamour that sits around the entertainment industry. And there's fear because of the amount of people that are attracted to it the glamour that's associated with it and the, the, the huge desire to want to be successful, that loss averse notion, that fear of, of, not, uh, of what you would miss out on or what you would lose if you didn't do something, is driving a whole lot of poor decisions for startups in the first place. You don't have to go to every single innovation event in order to find the magic pill. Sometimes you just need to do and yes, you need to get out there. You can't live in a bubble and you need to be part of community and all that sort of stuff is absolutely relevant. So this isn't saying, you know, you need to go and be by yourself or anything like that and be part of the communities, be an active member of the communities for sure. That's a lot of the time where you get your early adopters and prove out your ideas so that you don't go and spend, you know, all your investors' money on some wild goose chase. It's something to be aware of. It's a, it's a common trap that people fall into. So... And that's only that's only one example of how loss aversion rears its head in the in the in the startup industry. It happens in any number of different ways. But you can use that to your advantage too when you're marketing, right? So when you're marketing, you can you can point out exactly what people don't have. It's the fast car. It's the you know my car's better than your car sort of thing. You know, it's like there's a the insurance industry is is based on loss, right? This is loss aversion, and it's at its finest. You know, we're 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 protecting in the abs, you know, because we don't want to lose our things, our stuff, and so because of the the fear of losing stuff that's really valuable to us drives us towards insurance. So we insure that. So when we do lose it, they'll we get to pay it, and we can, you know, as painlessly as possible go back to the the things that we had. That's, that's almost moving into, if I understand correctly, the endowment effect, which I love. There was a Business Insider example where they went around trying to buy lottery tickets off people yeah. so they purchase a lottery ticket they turn around they say can i buy it off you for twice the price and most people said no mm-hmm. and it's because you you instantly value whatever you have as being more than it's worth that's right which makes it really hard to do things like say for example sell things you own like houses mm-hmm. and cars because mm-hmm. everyone values it higher when they own it themselves that's right which is absolutely yeah. and and so when you're procuring items if you're selling things right if you're needing to buy from a supplier, for instance, they'll always value their input or their effort or the things that they've done, they've created, they've built, higher than what they actually are. 
And so this is where you're in that negotiation stage, you need to know how to negotiate in a way that doesn't offend that and, and make people sort of run away, but is able to price things appropriately so that you can actually make a profit out of it and they realize the value that they've actually got. That's great. So there's been, I mean, there's been some absolutely fantastic nuggets there. And I think, you know, even just one of those hilarious, if someone can really wrap their head around it, they'll get a lot from it. I was just, the last thing I was just going to touch on for me is, I guess sunk cost is a big one for founders. And, and I don't know if this is the right way to approach it, but for me personally, I've always found that if you just draw a line and treat sunk costs as literally sunk costs and sort of say, hey, but ignoring what I've spent, what decision would I make now? So for example, yeah. you get founders who get offered brilliant jobs and turn them down because it's like, oh, well, I'm two years into my startup and I've already invested you know, X amount into it. Well, be that as it may, ignoring what you've already spent on it, what's the benefit of staying with that startup and following that or pursuing that great job and i think if people could recognize sunk cost bias a little bit more mm. you might get a few more founders who are willing to walk away from ideas that maybe aren't going to represent the fortunes that they hope mm. in a more rational way so i guess i guess the game for us or the game for you is to make people aware of these eight brain mistakes so hopefully we can either a be better marketers or b make better decisions ourselves yeah, look, absolutely. I, I think knowing what to do in terms of how much should you spend on marketing, should you, you know, or, or how much, you know, do I take this great offer that's in front of me, and will if I take this great offer, will that will that undermine all the effort that I've had in the last two years? I think that we usually say this a number of things. You know, if this was your best mate, what would you advise them to do? You know, in in all honesty. But the other thing is, there are many roads to the end goal. You know, people underestimate the pathway that you'll take and simply because something you make a different decision or go a different pathway to what you expected it would be doesn't mean that you won't get there in the end and often we see decisions as a or b and we fail to realize that there's always an option c you know so instead of it do i take this great new job or do i lose the the startup you know option c would be it's a way that i can do the job and and do the startup at the same time maybe negotiate different hours or different days or negotiate based on outcomes rather than outputs and things like that or you know is there a way that in this new job having this new job actually propels my new business and allows me to do things with it that allows me to bootstrap things that i otherwise wouldn't because you're not tied to investors and, and investor sort of demands and i can still eat you know it might take a little bit longer but you know i can still get there in the end so i think that's usually what the, the discussion has when people are faced with the exact sort of scenario that you're articulating there so it seems like a good segue just to introduce your business and, and for people who have sort of enjoyed what you're talking about, can you just explain a little bit about Decidia, what you do there and uh, what it does or the goal of the business is and, and for people who want to sort of follow up with you, the best way to sort of find you on social media or online? Yeah, look, I think, you know, we're all socially media active, you know, so if you Search for me on uh, on LinkedIn. You'll, you'll find me pretty easily. I don't think there's too many Phil Slades around. I think you're Philip Slade on LinkedIn, which makes you uh, terribly formal. Oh, really? I've, I've got the Ips on LinkedIn. I'm going to have to. You've got the Ips on LinkedIn. That. Wow, I don't know who did that. I'll fire someone. But anyway, uh, yeah. So finally, or decider.com. So that's d e c i d a dot co, not dot com dot co, and it's it's basically decision making. So you'll see there's sort of a few things that we do. You know, we basically look at organizations or at people at an individual level, at a team level or at an organizational level and figure out how they can better make decisions. So a way that you can sort of think of us is decision architects. You know, we architect better decision making. For us, 
you know, when we look at the, the big global problems around the world, whether they be social, economic, or political, they're all based around poor decision-making. And we have a fundamental belief that we can just raise the level of decision-making across the board. A lot of these social, economic, and political problems will just disappear because we're making better choices, better decisions individually. But in an organisation, you know, we'll often go in there and have a look. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk about culture and what is culture and how do you change culture and how do you nudge better decision-making within an organisation because that's where an organisation's biggest risk is. And even for those sort of startups that are scaling up, the biggest risk is the people and the, the speed at which you're, which you're putting people on and the decision-making systems change, you know, as, as you grow. You know, you go from 10 people to 25. It's a vastly different company. You have to 25 to 100 people all of a sudden. You know, if you do that too quickly, you've got major problems on your hand inter- hands internally. So we go through and we really try to, to improve the capability of decision-making between individuals uh, within teams and throughout the organisation uh, and start to track and measure some of those things. And that's kind of what we do, you know. Individually, you can get online and do a, you know, there's different types of apes. Different apes have different worldviews. And so you can get online, got a little, short little survey, which sort of helps you understand what your ape is and what your preferred rational thinking style is, uh, for want of a better term. Putting that together sort of helps you relate to other people and, and understand. Um, that's kind of fun. That's just a free thing that you can do and, and sort of gives you a bit of insight. And that's on your decider.co website. Yeah. People can just access it there. Yeah, that's right. They can just go on and have a poke around, do the survey, and I'll get a result and have a bit of fun and, uh, and, and go from there. But you can always email through the website or then follow us up on LinkedIn. And yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what Decider does. Think of us as decision architects. Great. Well, look, Phil, thank you so much. And like I said, you know, there's a bunch of things on behavioral economics that people can get into. I guess one last thing for you before we sign off is there, you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell. So should people be reading Tipping Point or Blink? Or, I mean, I've read them both. Are they, are they good starting points? Because, you know, look, it can be a heavy content area. So if you're going to give people one bit of reading homework, what, what book should they be reading if they're, if they're new into the field? Oh, one one book. Wow. Oh, well, you can have a couple. <laughs> I, I, might, I might need to give you a few. So if you're wanting to look at the uh, sort of the theory of nudging behaviors, there's a book called Nudge, and it's written by uh, guys called Cass, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. And Richard Thaler just won, uh, a couple of years ago, won the Nobel Prize for Economics. Yeah. And the seminal behavioral economics book, though, is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And it, sort of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky were the guys in the 70s that really came up with the prospect theory, which is loss aversion. Looking at loss aversion, that $50 analogy that I talked to you about before comes from their research back in the 70s. And they are the godfathers of behavioral economics. But it's a heavy read. The good thing about Malcolm Gladwell with things like Blink and What the Dog Saw and Outliers, which I think is, is it one of his best ones, Outliers actually, which is where the 10,000-hour rule comes from, he kind of has a nice way of distilling sort of research into a much more of a, a consumable, story-driven sort of narrative. So he's not a scientist himself. He's a journalist from uh, The New Yorker. And so he's just got a nice way of writing about it. You can sort of sit down and read one of his books in a day and feel great about it. Uh, with, you know, nudge or thinking fast and slow, you need to give yourself a month and you need to do it in short spurts. You kind of really need to be committed. I think the other recent book that Richard Thaler did was a book called Misbehaving. And that's pretty good too. And then anything by Dan O'Reilly, you know, irrationally predictable. I think predictably irrational one of the two. 
he's he's great as well. So they're they're kind of the big names in behavioral economics, and and they and they all cross reference each other. You can you can kind of see him, you know they all yeah. So absolutely yeah. And you're right. And look, Malcolm Gladwell, he's he's a natural born storyteller. So he just takes one simple element, but he gives it to you in the story of the Beatles, and you just go, ah, oh, I get that. That makes a lot of yeah. sense. So yeah, that's right. That's great. Yeah. All right, Phil, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for educating me and everyone who's listening. And look, I'm I'm going to chase you up again at some point and go through all the other little theories that we didn't cover on today's podcast but absolutely look if the next podcast is a four-hour podcast i'm there i'm i'm you know we're 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 good to go right oh <laughs> well, excellent fantastic thanks so much phil no worries thanks bye thanks for listening to this week's episode i hope we were able to provide you with some great marketing ideas that'll really help your business as always if you'd like to support me and the show just jump onto iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and rate and review. Those reviews really make a difference and help me reach a broader audience. If you'd like to connect, the best way to find me, of course, is on LinkedIn, following me on social media, or just connecting. And if you've got ideas for future episodes or you're a marketer and you would like to appear in a future episode, just hit me up on LinkedIn as well. I'd be happy to have a chat. Thanks a lot. And I look forward to speaking with you next week.